0: Welcome to EDGE Talk Radio's June 2nd, 2020 edition of Learning Well. Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we want to thank them so much for their continuing support. We're sorry that our originally scheduled guest, Dr. Elena Villanueva, whom we mentioned last month, could not be with us this evening. We will try and reschedule her, but... I am so excited that Harriet Cabelli will be joining us tonight. Harriet is a social worker speaker and author of a wonderful book called Living Well Despite Adversity, inspiration for finding renewed meaning and joy in your life. Her book is a collection of interviews with people who have suffered gut wrenching tragedies, ranging from the loss of a child to addictions to life altering accidents. But who have come out on the other side. They share their insights, encouragement, and wisdom on not only how to survive such adversity, but how to thrive and rebuild a life filled with renewed meaning and joy. Harriet will share with us tonight many of their insights as well as her own, and she'll be with us shortly. It's our hope that as we interview a wide variety of guests like Harriet Cabelli, who are leaders in the field of health and wellness, that you'll gain both useful and practical information and tools. And hopefully this will also be valuable information that you can share with your circle of friends and family, as well as perhaps clients and patients. As I mentioned earlier, our sponsor for these programs is the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College. And the center is really, a unique resource. It not only offers classes for individuals, but also for businesses. Their certification programs include such, such things as Tai Chi and Homeopathy and Healing Touch, and many of these classes will be offered online this coming fall. And we're very excited to announce that there will be three offered this summer. This is a course first that's going to be offered called The Energy of Food, Creating a Right Relationship to Substances, and that will be held on Saturday, June 20th from 9 a.m. to noon. And then on Thursday, July 2nd, there will be a teleseminar titled Personal and Global Healing During the Time of Pandemic Crisis, and that will be offered from 6 to 8 p.m. A third teleseminar, Chakras for Guiding Decisions, will be offered on Saturday, August 15th from 9 a.m to noon. These teleseminars will be led by energy work expert and author, Cindy Dale. And if you'd like more information about these upcoming teleseminars or any future classes at Normandale, we encourage you to call 952-358-8343, or you can email Normandale at normandale.edu forward C-E. And now I am really pleased to introduce our guest tonight, Harriet Cabelli. Harriet is a licensed clinical social worker and positive psychology coach. She counsels clients as they cope and grow through their grief and loss, challenges and adversities, and helps them rebuild their lives with renewed purpose and joy. Death of a loved one, divorce, illness, disability, and any critical life-changing circumstance can become a springboard for growth and change and newly created rich and Meaningful Living. She was one of the coaching experts on 970 AM radio, The Answer, Conversations with Joan, and she's appeared on ABC and Fox News as a parenting coach. She facilitates empowering women's groups and enjoys speaking on these subjects that she's passionate about. In 2017, Harriet published her first book, Living Well Despite Adversity, inspiration for finding renewed meaning and joy in your life. Harriet, I want to welcome you to Learning Well. I'm so glad you could be with us this evening.
1: Hi, Elise. It's great to be here. I'm I'm so happy you asked me, and... I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: I am, too, because I so enjoyed your book, and there is so much wisdom and also practical information in there, so I'm delighted we can share some of that. Yeah. Well, first, I think it would be helpful if you could share with our listeners your career path, because I think it's fascinating, and how it developed into the work that you're actually doing now.
1: (laughs) Okay. I'm going to try to make a long story short. Okay. Um, I... I started out as a psychology and an education major in college, and I became at that point a teacher, um, elementary school, and then went on for special ed. So I got a master's in special ed because I was always interested in kind of being more with the kids who struggled a little, who, who had more issues. Um, so I became a special ed teacher. Then I had two kids. My second daughter was born with disabilities um, in Evanston Hospital outside of Chicago, and when we moved back to New York, I decided that I wanted to not go back to teaching but to go back to what I truly loved, which was psychology, but I didn't pursue it at the beginning. I went into education, and I said to myself, Because I was helped so greatly by an amazing therapist in Evanston, Illinois, and an amazing um, mommy's group for babies born with disabilities at the University of Illinois, I was so uh, um, in, in amazement by the work that these two incredible therapists did that I said, I want to do work like that. So when I returned to New York, I enrolled in a master's program in social work, And I became a social worker, thinking that what I wanted to do with it was to go into working with parents who have had children born with disabilities because that was my personal journey, and I was inspired and helped greatly in my grief over having a daughter that had disabilities. And as my therapist called it, it was the shattered dream, and then how to rebuild our lives beyond our shattered dream. So I thought, this is amazing work. I want to do it. So I went on for a master's. Then, thinking I'm going to go into a private practice, I got detoured because I ended up getting divorced, and I listened to my mother's advice, which at the time was fabulous, and it was go into the, into the schools, become a school social worker, because that way you get your summers off and your vacations coincide with your children i had um three three i have three daughters and and you will have and you'll get home before they do by 3:30. my daughters went to private school so they came home a little bit later so it all like fit in so as a single parent of three young kids that's what i did i went and i became a school social worker not exactly the path i wanted but that's what life gave me at the time, and it worked out. But I didn't think I'd last there for 20 years. 20 years later, and, and I was an early, social, an early childhood social worker. 20 years later, which was now about 10 years ago, I left. But technically it's called I retired from my school social work job in the New York City Department of Education, because I said I finally want to have a chance to do what I really set out to do, which is working with people, going through loss and grief, and working in a private practice, and doing talks, and leading groups, and all the good stuff that I felt helped me when I needed it back when my daughter was a year old. So that's kind of how I got to where I am today in terms of my social work and the work that I'm doing currently, which is, again, running women's groups and seeing clients privately and speaking and all that kind of stuff.
0: You know what I love about that particularly
1: is that you had a dream and you were able to eventually move
0: in the direction of that dream. And it's such it's so encouraging yeah. to hear that you didn't have to give up on it. There there was a path, there was a way you could still pursue that. So that's that's right. just a wonderful
1: story. I I feel like I came kind of full circle and um, it's kind of, you know, if you, it's almost like if you live long enough and you keep after what you want, it actually can come to be.
0: <laughs> you know, it's so bizarre you should say it that way, because the other day my husband sat down with me and, and I was – talking about just some of the other things I'm doing, which you're well aware of even outside of this radio show. And he looked at me and he said, do you know that all the things that you've done up to this point in your life have contributed to your being able to move in this new direction? And I, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I realized, you know what, he's right. I mean, it, it's just kind of bizarre to think about that, but all the life experiences we accumulate somehow, some ways are able to benefit us later in life. So, yeah. Who knows? You never know. But I want to you talk about know. your your book, which is wonderful for many reasons. Um, but one of the things that I particularly loved about it was the fact that you not only interviewed all of these people and they have fascinating stories and gut-wrenching stories but you also provide such wonderful practical information as well as resources for people uh mm-hmm. i'm all about practical
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah
0: and yeah. that's so wonderful so how did the book come about tell us about that experience
1: so the book came about because well not because as it as an outgrowth of my daughter, the same daughter who was born in Evanston Hospital who has certain neurological disabilities, she went through a medical crisis when she was between the years of like 18 and a half and 20. She, went, she was in the hospital for a year between being in a drug-induced coma on a ventilator for four months and then going into rehab for eight more months, learning, relearning, I should say, how to breathe again and swallow and walk and every Mm. bodily function Um, she's really a walking miracle they did not think she would make it and she's got her life back today and it's amazing so having witnessed that and having felt like as her mother I got a second lease on life I came through that ordeal with her and kind of after she came home from the hospital after a year picked up the pieces and just went back to my school job, and it just, none of it felt right. I, it was judging me inside, and I had a lot of angst about it, saying, "How do I, I need to do something to honor this miracle that I bared witness to, to do something with it. You know how people do things when they have tragedies? They start foundations, and they do all kinds of amazing work out of their loss. And I said, thank God I didn't have that. I had a miracle. I want to do something with that. Mm -hmm. So I tried all kinds of different endeavors, some of which I talked about in the book. But what came eventually for me after quite a few years was returning to my original passion and interest from way back when I was a teenager, which was stories of people overcoming adversity for some strange reason ever since i was a teenager i was always fascinated by how people can go through horrific some horrific things and come out of it and do well and i started a blog on my website and i said you know what this is my baby i'm going to do my own little project and i started um interviewing people and i said I'm gonna interview someone once a month. I love books, I love stories, I love true stories and memoirs, and I'm gonna make this my project. So once a month I found people who had incredible stories of challenge and transcendence and I and I just reached out to people, they graciously accepted it and they answered my questions either via telephone or email and I put them on my blog and I had 36 of them, so I did it for three years. And then after a while, people were saying to me, you know, they're sitting on your blog. Why don't you just, like, compile them into a book? It would make, you know, for interesting reading. People can pick it up at any chapter. It's not like a novel. You have to start and go all the way to the end. You can pick it up at any point. And that's what I did. I found a publisher. I found a, um, a graphic designer, and it became a book and that was you know. my that was my ode to this miracle that i witnessed with my daughter hoping to give out inspiration and hopefulness to what to others who are going through you know tragedies and challenges and loss and and renewal
0: and you mentioned that as a teenager, you knew you had this interest. In fact, you talk about it in the opening pages of your book, that that you're able to pinpoint the point in time when you started to develop your passion for understanding how to live well despite adversity. Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's fascinating.
1: Yes, yeah, so I I had a boyfriend <laughs> when I was, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, and one day we went to what was called what was the Old World Fair in New York in Flushing New York and I remember going there with my father in the 1960s I'm dating myself of course and all the different pavilions from around the world so anyway my boyfriend and I had a picnic one afternoon by the Unisphere in the Old World's Fair Park called Flushing Metal Park. And he was telling me a lot about his mother and all that she had been through. She had had breast cancer, she had a mastectomy, and then she had a second mastectomy, and she had a son born with cerebral palsy, so my boyfriend's brother. He subsequently died. So this woman and i and i liked her very much this woman had gone through as far as i was concerned back then hell and back and had the most upbeat optimistic warm and friendly personality and i thought oh my god this is just like unbelievable how how does she have such an incredible disposition and when i bro- when i broke up with my boyfriend i didn't really I, I didn't feel sorry about breaking up with him obviously i broke up with him so i wasn't too sorry but i was sorry about <laughs> her and not being able to have a relationship with her anymore because i truly became so fond of that woman um so i really honed in as that moment because it kind of came to me that i'm just i'm just fascinated with this subject matter and again i i was earlier with 15 16 always people who had challenges, people, you would say now, maybe the underdog, which is why I I went into more of special ed. I, I was drawn to the slower students who needed more help. So I just use that as kind of like a defining moment, because it's so vivid for me. I can just picture that conversation. And I remember even telling my mother when I came home, and she said to me, oh, you, you, you're forever the, f-. she called it the philosophica, like a philosopher, the the, 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 philosoph- the philosophica person, and kind of like a Yiddish, Jewish way of saying, like always looking into the philosophy of it, and, and that's really a defi- that was kind of in my head a defining moment for that conversation for what came of it and what I studied in college and all of that.
0: you know I'm sure curious, Harriet, this is something we haven't talked about, but did you ever talk with his mother about how she maintained that incredible outlook on life after all of her experiences, or i you know, I don't know as a teenager, you would end up doing something no. like that, but I'm just curious yeah
1: that would have been good, right? You would have thought yeah. that you know, but no, but I didn't. Not many
0: of us could do that as a teenager, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, and
1: I, and I felt bad afterwards. I felt years later I thought I said, you know, I should have just talked more just about that kind of stuff cuz you could talk to her for hours. She was that kind of a person, open and psychologically oriented. So it's like one of those, you know, missed opportunities. But it but not m- missed in that regard, but not in regard that I I still think about it, right? And it when I put, when this book came up, when this yeah. book came out, I, I contacted this boyfriend from God knows how many years ago, I'm not going to say, and I told him, you know, in my first couple of pages, I referred to your mom.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what a wonderful thing for you to do. <laughs> well, well, you I know, people,
1: ask... leave Im- impact. people make a difference in your life, and isn't it nice to be able to tell that person? like, yes. Like I always think when we're eulogized, what a waste. Like tell people <laughs> when they're alive all right. that, that you're inspired by them.
0: You know, it's just the other day I was thinking about all the amazing teachers that I've had throughout my life, and how I wish I had contacted them to thank them, and of course did not. But yeah, yeah. it's just—I, um, in fact, I, I sent off an email of gratitude to someone today because I thought, I can't—you know—why not do this? There, there's so many people that help us in so many ways. Um, right. So. Anyway, going on, I want to ask you, too, about you have a great definition in your book about what it means to live well. Um, if we've experienced adversity, the goal we often seek is to live well. So I'd love for you, if you would, to share with us what you mean by live well. How does yeah, that? so
1: I'll, If I can just read the short paragraph from my, the intro in my book, um, sure. that, kind of, that kind of sums it up. Again, this is you know, my, my way of viewing it. So what does it then mean to live well? It means living with a sense of meaning and purpose, with an ability to experience joy and satisfaction. It means to embrace the positive and deal with the negative, to live aligned with one's values, to live with intention and to be an active creator of our life, to put our best self forward so we can positively impact and be of service to others while we occupy a place on this earth. But inherent in life is loss, and therefore so is the need to cope in healthy ways with our difficulties.
0: You know, that's what I have to say. One of the other things I love about your book is how what a beautiful writer you are. Um, so, a pre- <laughs> you. I was an English major. I'm sorry, I have to say that. <laughs>
1: I appreciate oh, the writing. well, coming so from an English major, that's even a greater compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I
0: also want to ask you about the work of psychologist Carol. am i pronouncing that correctly yeah Uh, yeah who developed Mm -hmm. the whole concept of growth versus fixed mindset and you talk about her and her work in your book and i'd love you to share more about that if you would
1: yeah um it's it's fascinating Uh, she comes out of stanford university she um developed this concept of the growth mindset growth mindset in juxtaposition to the fix. Now, what's the fix? The fix is what we all grew up with. You know, you take your IQ test in kindergarten or when you're entering first grade. It's a number, and it's like that's what that's what you are for the rest of your life. You're, you're this number. This is your set intelligence, and that's it. And this is what you were born with, and this goes, carries you through your life. And the, the growth mindset, which I'm not going to get into how she came about it, but she, the concept of the growth mindset is just so much more open in terms of possibility and and the the idea that nothing is truly fixed. Yes, we have innate predisposed um, genetic makeup things that that set us up for in terms of strengths and abilities, but we also have We also, all of us, have tremendous potential that goes untapped, and if we just go by, well, this is what I have, this is what I'm born with, this is it, we're closing ourselves off to so much richness, possibility, and potential. So the growth mindset basically says that we all have the potential to constantly grow and that there's neuroplasticity where our brain cells are always growing. While we are alive, we have opportunities and abilities to input things into our lives to expand us. So we may not all be geniuses, or we may not be all great in math or, or science, but that doesn't mean we can't get better at it in other words there's always that idea of improvement and growth and i look at myself and i say like i'm pretty technologically challenged i'm not great at this stuff of of technology but every time i have a win quote unquote and i'm able to do something i feel like wow i really grew in this area it'll never be my strong point but how nice to set instead of saying oh, i can't do this i gotta hire someone i gotta this i gotta that i pushed through it and every little win if i learn how to do a social media post or a new poster on social media it's like wow i did it it just enriches our lives it makes it, it opens us up and shows us that it's really limitless and when we hone into just the fixed idea of we have limited potential because our intelligence is limited or our abilities are limited. We are shutting down so much of ourselves. So out of this growth mindset comes the whole idea that you're more open to take risks. You're more open to failure because, after all, what's failure? Failure is just an opportunity to get back up, relearn, try it a different way, and push forward. There's just so many so many things that come out of the idea of of embracing this growth mindset. Effort effort is so crucial so that when we fail we keep trying. We don't just say, Oh well, I give up. I can't well, do it. It's the you, I can't.
0: It, the growth and change is all about stepping out of your comfort zone a lot of times, which you certainly did in writing this book. But one of the other things I found fascinating is that you stepped out of your comfort zone on a number of other fronts, including public speaking, clowning, foster raising a service dog. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what prompted those things and what your experiences were like with those oh, in those areas? first of all, I,
1: have to, I have to tell you, I'm so impressed. Would you really read this book with a fine-tooth comb? I did.
0: <laughs> I loved it.
1: I think that's great. Um, yeah, so those adventures came out of my angst after my daughter came through her medical crisis and I was like thinking, I need to do something, what am I going to do with all of this, and, and I can't just return to life as it was, because that's, like I said earlier, it's not honoring the experience and the miracle. So I kind of dabbled in a lot of different things. I like like you said we we puppy raised we were foster to parents to a dog through an organization that then gives the um, if the dog is accepted uh, the dog goes on to live with a person with disabilities so we were just I was looking for ways of doing things that had meaning like I wasn't going to start a foundation or a new organization which a lot of people do and I'm always jealous of that and I say I want to and at that point I did attempt a book I attempted a memoir and it got rejected like 17 million times so even though my agent at the time said chicken soup book uh, the, the series got rejected 87 times you can keep going at some point <laughs> i said it's okay i'll give this one up it's an evergreen theme you know overcoming adversity never goes out it's part of the human condition maybe i'll I'll revisit it later so i had tried that and then this clowning trip came into my my awareness i i was a fan of patch adams there was a movie made Made of him with Robin Robin Williams, starred Patch Adams. He's a kind of an avant garde doctor who also clowns, and I I liked his medical philosophy of of healing the whole. So we um, so I. Dragged my husband along. <laughs> He's always amenable, <laughs> and we put on our our clowning suits in the Rome airport. You did not have to be a professional clown, and we joined a group where we went to Sicily and clowned all over in orphanages and juvenile delinquency homes and hospitals, and and it was an amazing, amazing experience. So my, I was just looking for things to that were meaningful to to just get involved in. And they were, these were all like one shot deals. Like the clowning trip was 10 days, the puppy raising, which was, that was much longer. That was a year and a half. Um, So, you know, I was still kind of on a search for like, what's this thing going to be that's going to make me feel, ah, I stumbled on the right thing Mm. to feel like I'm paying back or I'm doing good with the miracle that I've been given. So those were isolated kind of adventures, but they've become part of the tapestry of my life, and they've really been amazingly rich adventures and experiences. And, yes, it was absolutely stepping out of my comfort zone. The dog, the clowning, absolutely. But that's what life became for me after, and that's how I feel like I grew out of this experience with my daughter. Her name is Nava, is more, uh, there's a whole concept, I don't know if we're going to have time to get into it, called post-traumatic growth. But for me, it was very internal, all the shifts and changes, living with a stronger sense of urgency, stepping out of my comfort zone, doing things that were enriching, even though they may have been, again, like more, you know, well, you don't do that. Well, okay, I'm trying it anyways. like not putting things off, because when I would sit by my daughter's bedside when she was in the intensive care unit for four months on a ventilator, and I would listen to every beep and bleep. I mean, you can't help but realize that all all of our lives hang by the thinnest of threads, and at any one moment, it's done. So this became a very big internal shift for me in terms of how I live my life. Now, truth be told, I was always a doer. Um, I was always someone who initiated, but... Not to this degree and not to, I I was much more like shy and I wouldn't step out. So this became a whole new, I don't know, persona is the right word, but definitely something new for me. Mm,
0: Fascinating story. And let's go back to your book for just a second because... One of the other things I found fascinating were the variety of people that you ended up talking to. And could you give our listeners just a sense of the wide variety of people you interviewed and the types of adversities that they were dealing with?
1: Yeah. So somebody called it for me that she said she said to me, "You know, you have a diversity of adversities." Uh-huh. I like that term. I said, yeah. "Can I steal it?" She said, "Of course, it's your book." <laughs> a diversity of adversities. So my goal was to get different types of challenges that people had experienced, whether so it was, unfortunately, you know, the death of a child, the death of the spouse, um, uh, someone becoming a quadriplegic, uh, someone who was addicted to drugs, someone who ran over a teenager and killed the teenager accidentally. Um, So all different types. Of challenges, and I wanted that. I wanted that for the for the, for the reader to see that it's it's not just one. That there's so many different types of loss, and people. It's not just about the loss due to death. There's loss in in loss in, a, in a, an illness. A young person suffers a stroke. I mean, there's all types of loss, and we grieve all different types of of these ty- of challenges. So that was my goal: was to highlight different types of challenges.
0: And were there any, there were 36 people, as you mentioned, that you interviewed. Were there any stories that particularly moved you or surprised you in any way?
1: Oh, there were a lot. Um, one, well, to highlight one, um, Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin is a, is a woman with um, Asperger's syndrome. She's pretty, she's pretty known. She speaks mm-hmm. a lot um, in the world of autism. There was a, two, a movie made of her, and she's written a few books. Um, I was just fascinated with that because when I reached out to her, and I reached out to people saying it could be the, either be done email or phone, and as soon as she got my email, it was very interesting, she immediately said, I'll, I could speak to you tonight. Tonight, I mean, I'd have to make... I'd have to make appointments with these people sometimes a month in advance. Mm -hmm. And she would say to me, I'll speak to you tonight. I'm traveling and I'll be in my motel. So can we have the conversation on the phone tonight? I thought that was a riot. So (laughs) I got my tape recorder ready and and, and we had this whole conversation on the phone. And it was just fascinating because she spoke so beautifully about the idea of finding people's strengths and digging deep. And that when when she meets kids who come over to her after her speaking or or parents of kids with autism and they say, you know, my son Johnny, who's autistic, and she would say, don't say Johnny who's autistic, say Johnny who has autism because he also has a love of cars, and he's wonderful in numbers, and he loves seeing sunsets. In other words, don't make his label his entire identity. It is one aspect of, a, of an entire human being. And I just love that. I just love that because that opens us up once again to unlimited possibility as opposed to constricting us to one narrow definition of ourselves. And well, labels. One, of
0: the, one of the other things that just is so impressive is the resilience factor. And, and that's something that I've always been fascinated with. I mean, I we were sharing some emails, and I was mentioning the fact that Kirby Puckett, who used to play for the Minnesota Twins, was just to me an incredible example of someone who grew up under the worst circumstances on the south side of Chicago and yet just had this amazing positive bubbling personality so it's just always fascinating fascinating me and I'm there's a lot of research that's been done on this whole concept of resilience so Mm -hmm. it's curious to me always has been on whether we're genetically blessed with it or are we able to cultivate resilience what what does the research tell us
1: right so that and that's the big question you know when you say well, how come this person has the strength and resilience and this person doesn't seem to? And someone will say, oh, I'm just born that way. And someone else will say, well, you're just naturally optimistic. So the research shows that resiliency is a skill set. And, yes, we are born, you know, with a certain amount, let's call it, and we have genetic predispositions to things in general, right? But having said that, we can build our resiliency muscle. And that's the point that research is showing today. It's a skill set just like emotional intelligence. Not everyone is born with such high emotional intelligence, but it can be built, it can be developed and and it's and it's skills that can be taught. But yes, we do come into this world with certain predispositions. So I want to just mention that um uh Sonia lubriansky I think I'm saying her name right is a research, social science uh, psychology researcher. I think she's also in Stanford. I'm not sure. And she made, she created this pie of happiness, she called it. And it's very interesting. And she divided it up, and she found that 40% of our well-being or happiness is based on our genetics. Okay, that makes sense, right? 40%, some of us may think it, it would be bigger, but she she came up with 40%. 10 10%, 10% is our circumstances, which I think is very surprising because mm-hmm. I think we, many of us, at least I certainly did, I'm sure many people think that our well-being and our happiness is based on what's going on in our life. Well, so this is lousy, I lost my job, I'm miserable, and oh, now I won the lottery and I'm very happy. So that our well-being and happiness is based on circumstance. So 10%, that's a very small number right and the other, the rest 50% is based on our intentional behaviors meaning our actions our beliefs our thoughts our values what we input into our lives that there's a lot of control there then that we have over our lives it's not just well that's it it's my genetics well i was born a pessimist well this is just who i am i'm not as resilient you know, again, we, we, we may have a certain baseline, but we can up it. And that's, that's where the growth mindset comes in. If we have the fixed mindset then we, and we buy into that, well, well, I can't help it. That, that's just who I am. The growth mindset says, okay, so I'm more predisposed, let's say, to being a person who's a pessimist or the half-empty glass person. But having said that, we could bump up. A little bit, a half a notch, another half a notch. We can input things that could increase. We may never be the the optimist, but we could certainly always be moving our baseline up.
0: And brain research is fascinating, uh, what that is revealing. And one of the things that was mentioned in the Dan Harris interview that you did, who has written several books on meditations, I'm sure some of our listeners will recognize that name. He's a a, a news anchor. Um, And he was talking about actually meditation can change Can change the wiring in our brains. Um, So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure there's there's so many other fascinating things that we're totally unaware of. But obviously, we can do things, as you say, that are very much in our control to change the way we think and our circumstances to a large degree. And one of the other things that you've done is at the conclusion of each interview of the book, you provide a resource related to the content of the chapter. And some of the resources related to books or films or other projects created by the people that you interviewed, and some were specific resources that you recommended. And for those listeners who are currently dealing with adversity and certainly considering what's going on in the world right now there are a lot of people dealing with some severe adversity uh, can you share with us some of the resources that you feel might be most helpful
1: well i'm a person who loves books so for me i always turn to books to learn and to gain knowledge and and exercises and all kinds of things so I have to put out there the very first one. For me, that is life-changing, and that's the book by Dr. Victor Frankel called Man's Search for Meaning. Now, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of it. Uh, hopefully, many have read it, but if you haven't, I would absolutely have that as a top-reading priority. It's a, it's not easy because the first half is his experiences in numerous concentration camps, The second part of it is his developing his theory of logotherapy, which is what he founded as the therapy of meaning and purpose. And he found that those people in the camps, when they had something to hold on to for their purpose, whether it's a loved one back home, whether it was a manuscript, whatever it was, if they could hold on to that, they were more likely to survive than those who just had nothing and gave up hope and said, that's it, I'm done, and roll up in a ball and die, which nobody is is criticizing, because to me it's an amazing thing that anyone survived. But he found that, so if if he would see a, a prisoner who went over to someone else and shared his crumb of bread or put his bony hand on another person, that created meaning. He was extending himself, and he saw that it was how people responded to the circumstances. In other words, they were, they were all, under the, all under the same circumstance, the horrific circumstance, but the responses became different. And that's, how, that's one of his famous theories that came from his, from his studies that he later put in this book, which is, it's not about, you know, what's the last of the human freedoms, is the freedom to choose, the attitude. So, but getting back to your question, which is, I could talk all about Viktor Frankl because he's my hero, <laughs> but getting back to your question, so what, what's some resources? That's to me the first because that is a book that talks specifically to adversity and overcoming challenges and not becoming a victim to it and the idea that we always have a choice we always have a choice i have to bring up this example i think it's so relevant in fact i tried to reach out to this guy to interview him but i haven't heard back yet last week on the show the voice i think that's what it's called there was this man on who sang one of elton john's songs Maybe you've heard the story, Archie Williams. He had just, last year he was exonerated after being in jail for 37 years. Mm. He was exonerated. He came on the show. He sang this Elton John song, and it was unbelievable because the idea is, and people asked him, how did you survive? How did you survive? You are imprisoned. The power of the mind. The choice of I am going to visualize and I'm going to keep my mind going and he always liked singing so he created himself a band there and he visualized and he kept his mind strong and that's what it's all about Mm -hmm. it's all about that
0: it's so interesting as you were talking what flashed into my mind was an interview I remember hearing that I will never forget it was one of the survivors of the Iranian hostage crisis back when Jimmy Carter was president and Mm -hmm. He said that what he did, what kept him going, was that he took control basically in a very small way that he could take control and that was he would save a few crumbs of his food and when one of the guards would come in or anyone else, he would offer them food. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it just still gives me chills to think about it, that mm-hmm. he was he mm-hmm. was able to take control at least partially of that situation. Um, right. So anyway, I, I I have not heard of that gentleman on The Voice, but I would love to go. We've, I think, recorded that showing, and I have to go back and take a look at it. Oh,
1: I think it's cool, The Voice, the one with Simon – Simon yes. is one of the judges, so after hearing it, Simon became like now the ambas- one of the ambassadors to the Innocence Project, because the Innocence oh, Project is what helped free him. Anyway, the whole, you talk about overcoming adversity. I mean, if this man doesn't personify that, it's like, yeah. oh my God. It, you know, like Nelson Mandela being in jail so many years and coming out. What, what was that? That was, that was the power of the mind, the will, the will. And that's all Viktor Frankl stuff that he writes about. Mm-hmm. how do some people how can they transcend such horrific circumstances and then you have other people who seemingly have it all this is what used to this is what used to come up for me when i was a teenager i always remember this how do some people who seemingly have it all and they walk around bitter and down and complaining like what is that all about and then those people so many people who have it so rough can seemingly have 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 such well-being about them have such a such sunniness so yes some people we are born with a disposition but we also can input so much that's in our control to make it better for ourselves it's how we choose to respond
0: you have worked with so many interesting people over the course of writing your book are there any other stories that you could share with our listeners that you found Particularly interesting on how someone went about re- rebuilding their lives. You mentioned Temple Grandin. Anyone else that really stands out for you?
1: In my book, you're saying correct? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In, from my book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. There's a lot, but so there. There's a man who um, he's a psychologist, and he was hit by a truck when he was very young. He became a quadriplegic. No, not a, a paraplegic and he he actually he has a radio station also out of Philadelphia i think but his lines what he would say that how, how do you get helped from people how do you get the support from people that you need and what do what do we as people do to help support someone else going through something horrific and he had such a beautiful way of saying just be with me just sit with me don't give me platitudes, don't try to fix my sadness, don't try to take away my sorrow. Just sit with me and hold me in silence. And that is comforting, and that means I feel supported. I mean, there's there's so many little nuggets in so many in all of the interviews, but that stays with me because as a grief therapist and I work a lot with people going through grief, That idea of not having to fix someone and not having to fix, you know, we're a society, we're pill-popping, we're not comfortable with uncomfortable feelings, we want to make everybody feel better, and that's not how it works with grief. It works where we we validate the feelings. We don't try to take them away. We don't try to make it better. We don't try to problem solve. We don't make it like it's a pathology. And it's hard for a lot of people because we just want to make them feel better, right? Snap out of it. Let's do this. You'll feel better. But that's not what helps. And when I went through my therapy for a year with a good psychologist in Evanston, upon finding out the diagnosis of my daughter, that's exactly what he did. There were no answers. He sat with me and held a space for me to rant and rave about whatever was coming out, my bitterness, my sorrow, my this, my that. And it was going through that process, going through it, that helps you come through it. But it's painful And people don't want to. It's a quick fix, take a pill, do this, do that. How do I distract myself? I don't want to feel it. I get it, but that's not the way we can truly come through it in a healthy, put-together way.
0: And and healthy mentally and physically because I've read so much about the fact that if we don't go through those feelings and don't go through that process, it can affect us Physically, in so many ways in our lives, whether it's at that point in your life or whether it's later in your life.
1: Um, right, right. I, rem-
0: Absolutely. I rem- came across something recently that also just sort of took me up short when I read it, but it really relates to what you're talking about. And it was an article about how do you relate to somebody who's for instance just learned that they have a very poor health prognosis saying what do you do and so many of us would be tempted to say things like well call me you know if I can do anything but when we do that we're putting the onus on that Mm -hmm. person which is which is not something that they they need at that point but if you can as you say just spend time and just make a decision to help in some way Uh, but it's just it's it's not something we're used to doing or handling in that way,
1: um, right? But that's you, that's so important. That's such a great point you brought up about if we say to them, you know, oh, let me know what you need. Or well, let me know. Yeah. That's exactly what you said. You put we're putting the onus on the person who's who's in pain. Yeah. it's not their responsibility at that point. We need we're the ones who need to be proactive, and if we know them well, assess their needs. And proactively go in to try to fill them, whether it's shopping for them or driving them somewhere, or like you say, just coming in and sitting with them for an hour over coffee and just being there
0: and or, letting them
1: set the agenda.
0: Yeah, or saying, what night is the best night for me to bring over dinner right. for you?
1: Exactly. <laughs> Not do lines. you want dinner, but yeah. what Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but yeah. We're, a lot of us aren't used to it. And then the flip side of that is, which I also learned a lot from a lot of these interviewees, was also the idea of being able to ask for help. Mm. Some of us are not good at asking for help. We're good at giving, but we're not good at asking, and how important it is to ask for what we need, because... Otherwise, people aren't necessarily mind readers. So it's like the flip side. We just said it shouldn't be on the onus of the person suffering to ask, and now I'm saying we got to ask. But, yes, sometimes we, you know, if we can and we know what we need, not to feel like, oh, I can't ask, it's a sign of weakness, just the opposite. And I learned that from some of these people I interviewed. It's a sign of strength to be able to ask and say, I do need this. I think this might help me.
0: And it's not That's, easy for us. No, it's not. One of the, the interviews, as I mentioned earlier, that I was especially impressed with was Dan Harris. He was so articulate in response to your questions. And he was so open about his own struggles, which also impressed me a great deal. I mean, he ended up having a panic attack as he was mm-hmm. on TV, uh, mm-hmm. which is what propelled him into getting help. But he talked about how meditation has helped him, and in your comments following his story, you started off by saying one of the biggest benefits in meditation is its ability to increase our resiliency by changing our reactive patterns to stress. Mm-hmm. Can you tell yes. us a little bit more about how that works with meditation
1: yeah, but and i can I read you his a couple of his lines because he's oh, funny also yes and and he'll he'll answer this and then I'll comment on that. He writes, one of my questions to him was, as a type A person, this is my question to him, as a type A person, what has meditation been able to do for you? His answer is, I'm definitely type A, and I'm still type A, and highly stressed even after starting meditation. But now listen to this part. I don't think meditation is designed to make you a lifeless blob. It does a (laughs) couple of key things. It teaches you how to respond wisely instead of blindly reacting to the things in your life. So if somebody cuts you off on the road, rather than just automatically flying into a rage, you might be able to notice, hmm, I'm getting angry. And then you could let it pass. That doesn't mean squashing it. It just means recognizing what's happening and making a decision. Am I going to let my emotions yank me around or not? So that's what he said in that paragraph that I'm reading that I just read. So in answer to your question, yes, what it, what it hopefully does is it reduces our reactivity and helps us just at the moment that we're feeling it, notice what we're feeling, like the road rage or the person really got us annoyed, okay, I'm feeling angry to yourself, and then coming at it but with a response instead of react so instead of reacting which is more involuntary we respond which is more thought out even for a second it's just taking that small step back and not just reacting with oh my god the finger and the curse but you know it's almost like taking that breath but when we and and the reason i say that how does meditation get us there because when we're meditating We're trying, you know, people think, oh, I can't meditate, I have a monkey mind, I have thoughts all around. We're not trying to necessarily stop our thoughts because we're human and they're not necessarily going to stop. I mean, maybe we could calm them a little bit. But it's the idea of every time we have a thought, we notice it, and then we come back to the breath. And then we have a thought again, oh, what's for dinner tonight? Notice, come back to the breath. Have a thought, and there's a visual that I like, which is release it like a leaf floating down a stream just let it go and come back to the breath so when we get used to that and maybe hopefully the goal is it transfers a little bit into our daily life it's like oh have a provocation guy cut us off i'm pissed up okay let the leaf go now how will i react so, I mean, to me that's the eventual thing is we be, we hopefully become a little less reactive and more responsive because we have that ability to notice it, to take I, note within us instead of being on autopilot.
0: And I think having a visual that we can call up quickly can be so helpful. I'll never forget, and I don't know if this was a result of reading a book or going to a seminar at some point in my life, but someone talked about if if you start just this – whole role that continues on and on of negative thoughts, one of the things you can do is picture a stop sign and right. just have that visual image to help yourself combat that whole cycle of negativity. Yep. And, and, and in their book, there are some people who also share some wonderful images. Can you, can you give us a few of those?
1: Yeah, so one, um, one person shares the image that actually her daughter's therapist, gave to her when she felt she was like a little girl, like 8 or 10 years old, and she, would, she was telling the therapist that she just feels like she's just going down, going downhill. And the, the therapist made a picture of like a spiral and where it's kind of going down, just to reflect back what this little girl was saying. And then he made another picture next to it of a staircase. And he was comparing and saying, you know, validating the feeling of going down into a black hole and spiraling, but that then opposite that is this staircase where you can begin to climb up the staircase very slowly, one step at a time to begin to get out, but slowly, very slowly. So I think that's an important visual. So that spiral, and then there's also the staircase the staircase of climbing one step at a time. And when people are in the throes of pain, we can't look at a big picture. We need to just look at baby steps. So if someone feels they just, you know, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning and and they're suffering, so just the idea of put your feet on the ground and then stand up and feel yourself grounded and then walk a few steps into the bathroom. I mean, really, really baby steps. And that's the beginning. We can it's it's just like when you're climbing a mountain. I'm a hiker. If if you stand at the bottom and you look at the top, you say, "Forget it, I'll never do that." But if you start one step at a time, it's like, "Oh my god, look at this. I'm like a quarter of the way up."
0: I will never and, forget the conversation I had with Michael Greger, who's the author of How Not to Die, and he was talking about his grandmother and the reason he went into medicine was because she was having major heart problems, and basically, doctors said to her, There's nothing more we can do for you. She started reading about how diet can impact your life. She totally changed her diet and literally almost came back from the dead i mean she wow. had wasn't even able to get out of a wheelchair she was able to get up and take a few steps eventually and as you're yeah. saying i mean eventually she was walking many miles a day and she lived for another 15 years i mean it's wow. it is yeah. truly amazing
1: um yeah, but it starts we, with those baby steps and i yeah. saw that during my daughter's rehabilitation i mean this That's what it's all about. It's all about baby steps because when we look at that bigger picture, that becomes overwhelming, and then we want to throw in the towel and say, I can't do that. I'll never get back to work. I'll never be able to do this. You know, it's like if someone would have told me ahead of time when my daughter was put into a drug-induced coma, if that doctor would have said to me, you're in for four months of this, I would have said, oh, no, there's no way. I'll survive it. But I never – it's like that's why, It's in a way, it's good we don't have that future looking glass, right? We yeah, can't look right. and see into our future. Because if I knew that, I would have said there's no way I can do it. But not knowing and just well, one day at a time, one day at a time, and then you start stringing together the days and you see, you know what, we're doing it. It's just like now when we're quarantined. My daughter has had a hard time. One day at a time, that's yeah. the mantra. And you get yeah. through each day and you and it becomes a week and then another week and – I think that's a great coping mechanism. It sure works.
0: And, Harriet, we have so quickly run out of time, I can't believe ah. it. Is there, <laughs> is there a best way for our listeners to learn more about your work and to reach you before we, we have to move um, on?
1: My website, www.rebuildlifenow.com, rebuildlifenow.com, because I help people rebuild their lives. And if you sign on to the website, you can download a couple of free chapters of the book. Oh wonderful.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. This has been delightful. Oh, this was I great. so appreciate. <laughs> well, thank this you, was Harriet, great. and I hope our listeners catch your book and your website and hope we'll talk to you again at some point. I hope thank so. you. Thank we'll you. We'll be Before we close this evening, I want to let our listeners know about some of our future guests on Learning Well. Our July 7th guest is Dr. Catherine Kurosu, who is trained as an OBGN and later became certified with the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. She's also certified as a medical acupuncturist and has also completed an MS degree in Oriental Medicine. And then aromatherapist Jen Shepard will be our guest on August 4th. And on September 1st, I hope you can join Join us for a conversation with Dr. Wendy Wood, whose most recent book is Good Habits, Bad Habits. And we've also had some fascinating previous conversations on learning well with guests such as Dr. Adam Perlman, who's co author of Mequilibrium and is now director for health and well being for the Mayo Clinic in Florida, Dr. Henry Emmons, who incorporates integrative health modalities into his psychiatric practice and who's the author of The Chemistry of Joy, and Mary Hayes author of Unconditional Forgiveness. You can easily access and luckily at your convenience at any time any of these past Learning Well programs by simply Googling Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. In closing, I'd like to thank our guest Harriet Cabelli and I'd also like to thank the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale for sponsoring this show. Thanks so much for being with us tonight and please tune in next month on Tuesday July 7th and And until then, I wish you well, stay healthy, and good night. Take care.